I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure for female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at, at @newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopergrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. This episode was both a challenge and a pleasure to record. A challenge in terms of the subject matter and a pleasure to record because of my lovely guest, Emma. Emma, as my old boss but now good friend, has always come across as an older soul and her measuredness and care when choosing her words is clearly reflective of not only her education but also natural personality type of being so thoughtful, considered and almost academic in her answers at times. For something so emotional and heartbreaking as recurrent miscarriage, she is a role model of openness and frankness about something that affects one in four women, but in Emma's particular case of recurrent miscarriage, less than one in a hundred. When Emma first told me about what had been going on for her, I wasn't married yet, I wasn't thinking about babies, and I really struggled to contextualise what she had been going through. I knew miscarriage was common, I knew it was sad, but I found it really difficult to picture or imagine what that would feel like or be like for the person actually going through it. I remember being shocked and feeling also privileged that she was sharing something so personal with me. But now I realise that, yes, indeed, miscarriage is personal, but it doesn't make it shameful or secretive. And the same goes for all fertility treatments that affect so many of our lives as women and the partner's lives holding our hands throughout. The female body and reproduction in general is complex. It can be sad, frustrating, baffling, and also miraculous and magical all at once. With a statistic like one in four, the overwhelming odds are that whether you as a listener are male or female, you will know at least one woman close to you who's had a miscarriage or suffered from baby loss. And the chances are you know at least several more who simply haven't told you or who have suffered in silence. However shocked I was that Emma had told me about her story at the time, it paved the way for me when my own early loss happened a couple of years later where she was the first person I messaged. And when I got pregnant again with my son, the person I texted most days just to get through the extreme anxiety of a pregnancy after a loss. As I shared, people I never knew who'd suffered started to share their own stories. And it made me question the silence and the stigma that surrounds baby loss and the blame that still occurs as people try to explain away what happened to these women. Tommy's an incredible charity funding pioneering research to identify why pregnancy goes wrong is helping us to understand how we can prevent complications and loss, as well as enabling specialist care for people at their own clinics, research centres and all across the NHS. Their campaign, hashtag Tell Me Why, is rightly questioning the unfairness, the outdatedness and inadequacy of dismissing miscarriage and stillbirth as being just one of those things. There is a proven and scientific gender data bias away from research that supports and empowers women and families, and it is only with fantastic charities such as Tommy's who are trying so hard to end this inequality that women will no longer have to hear that as their answer in a medical setting that it is just one of those things. The Instagram account at I Had a Miscarriage has a really great post on this subject that I'll now read. Whether you lost your baby at five weeks or 20 weeks, whether it is your first or your fourth loss, whether or not you already have a child or not, or whether you have four more, whether you lost the baby in your teens or your 40s, whether you lost your baby through IVF or unplanned pregnancy, your pregnancy loss still matters. Your grief matters and women matter. 
Babies born after a loss are often referred to as rainbow babies, and Emma's story has a happy ending. Her less than one in a hundred story ended in a beautiful double rainbow. It is an emotional story that she shares, but if it encourages just one person to be a little more open and end the silence, then hopefully this episode will have done a good thing. If you want to share your own story with me, feel free to do so on Instagram at New Leaf Podcast. My next guest is a politics nerd and all-round high achiever who did philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford University before spending a year at Harvard, as you do. She then headed off to work in the private sector in New York before swooshing into number 10 Downing Street twice at a laughably young age. She then jumps into an enormous job as Director of Strategy for the National Citizen Service, the UK's largest social enterprise helping young people thrive all over the country, where she oversaw the growth of just 8,000 young participants to 90,000 during the course of her tenure. Now, as a director in the cabinet office, she's also managed to squeeze in the births of two little boys, and it doesn't really look as if she's slowing down anytime soon. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Emma de Classe. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. So let me just describe how we actually know each other. Emma and I worked together ooh, four years ago now, and Emma actually did my interview for the job that I was going for, which was at NCS or National Citizen Service. And I thought after that interview, I was like, there's no way I got the job. No way. Is that because I looked at you with stony silence? Yes, that's exactly right. Emma doesn't, she doesn't give much away. And as quite an effusive person myself, I was, I don't know, I think I was expecting less stoniness. I remember speaking to my husband saying like, what a shame. Oh, well, I really wanted that job. (laughs) You know, that's so funny because the second half of that interview process where you met the CEO is one of the most memorable that I can think of for NCS. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because of the t-shirt thing, right? Because of the t-shirt thing, because of the really, really weird interview question from our CEO, who for some reason decided to ask every potential employee what would be on the back of their t-shirt. And most people look at him like he has two heads when he says that. And without skipping a beat, you just said, go hard or go home. (laughs) Which, to be fair, I think legitimately would be on the back of your t-shirt. I think it would. It's definitely a kind of put your all into it or just forget it. Go hard or go home. Although when I say this to people, they think it sounds really dodgy. It also sounds weirdly macho, which you're definitely not. But I think enthusiasm and commitment, sure. Macho, dodginess, a bit less so. I have to say, it was a weird interview question. I was definitely like, this is something that somebody has looked up in a book and has been like, I'm going to ask this every time. I mean, we would have candidates come in who would list off, you know, 20 personal characteristics as being on the back of the t-shirt and also you know what fair enough it's just a weird question and I don't know what I would have answered (laughs) well I always think because you guys used to work in strategy they do tend to ask some quite nutty interview questions right like how many light bulbs are there in the whole world how many golf balls can you fit in a 747 that sort of thing Basically, that's how we know each other. So I worked for Emma about four years ago for NCS, which was arguably my favorite job in the whole universe. I just loved that job so much. And since then, it sounds like you've been pretty busy. Yeah, I've done a few things since then, not least have two babies. Um, And I went back into government, which is where I started. So I've kind of come full circle from the beginning of my career. And I'm now back in the cabinet office. And we're going to get into more detail about this because it's super interesting. But before that, just tell us where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? I can see beautiful trees in front of me because I'm in Chislehurst and we picked it because of the beautiful trees. So I'm in my bedroom, which we've turned into a pandemic office, looking out of the window and it's sunny for a change, which is nice in November. Gorgeous. And it sounds like you've got a pretty quiet house. I think it's probably one of only a handful of times since the summer of 2019 where I've been in my own home alone. So I feel a bit uncomfortable, actually. It's weird. I don't (laughs) don't quite know what to do with myself. Well, have a nice coffee and have a chat, I think is the answer to that question. I think that's what's on the agenda, yeah. 
Exactly. So take me back in time. I know that you've had a super interesting career, but where were you at university? It was Oxford University for my undergrad. Then after that, I went over to America for a year, which was basically a geek's gap year to study whatever I liked um, at Harvard without doing any exams or anything. It was just a year to soak it all in. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's such a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? It really is. And I think that for me, my undergraduate study was quite a grind. I worked really hard. I had my head down. I was 20 book reading lists twice a week. And then when I went over to America, it was much, much more about the experience. It was about the friendships. It was about the travel. It was about the culture. And it feels like a completely different planet in a way to the little bit of the UK that I'm from. And I think it's probably one of the best years I've ever had. Must have been really strange going from something super, super structured. And I mean, 20 books every half week is insane. And I'm a massive reader. You don't read them all. It's not possible to read them all. You skim and you flick and you try to find things that are relevant. You just pick a couple from the list, but you're expected to have a sense of what they all say. It's pretty punishing, I think. It's very, very self-taught. I have really mixed feelings about it because I think that what it teaches you primarily is a way of thinking and a way of arguing. And those things are valuable. It helps you to walk into a room and, and not be intimidated by people who know more than you or who are more senior. And that's certainly a valuable thing at work. But it doesn't actually teach you very much in terms of the substance. It puts you under quite a bit of pressure to be on your game. I mean, like everything else, it, the range of experience is huge and there are people who absolutely love every minute of it. And then there are others who just get a little bit lost or intimidated by the whole thing. But I think I found the college system and the sort of big gaps between tutorials quite isolating, to be honest, and probably took me until my third year to really settle in, make deep friendships and to feel comfortable there in a way that when I went to America, I met one of my best friends stepping off the plane because I was confident enough just to introduce myself at immigration. At Oxford, I sometimes skipped dinner because I was too nervous of going into the hall without knowing who was already in there. There would be a, a dinner time and the doors to the Great Hall, which is exactly like you see in Harry Potter, would be closed. And if I didn't have someone to go inside with, I'd sometimes be too nervous to go in because I wasn't sure who'd be in there and where I would sit on those massive long tables and all of that. And, you know, when you're 18, it's, it's not as easy as you think it's going to be, I think, to leave home and make friends and build a whole new life. So you didn't take a year out or anything between school and uni? No, I didn't. I went straight through and I have a late birthday, so I'd really just turned 18. I had gone and worked as an au pair in Sydney for a month or so, which I loved. That was a really great experience. But I didn't have much of a gap between finishing school and starting uni. Yeah, and you're really young when you've just turned 18. And you do so much growing up between, I think, 18 and 21 especially you could really tell I thought at uni the people who had had a year out and the people that hadn't and not in a critical way at all it's just that you know it's a whole year extra of life experience at a time where it makes a real difference because relatively obviously it's just a larger portion of your life yeah I think that's right and I think that those people probably just feel a bit more comfortable in their own skin and a bit more they have a bit more ability to settle in or, or meet people or stand on their own two feet but if you come straight from home I thought I had all those things for sure <laughs> if you met me at 18 I was pretty bullshit and I thought I knew exactly what I was doing but I still remember the moment where my parents left after dropping me off and I I did feel sad and, and nervous. It's unsurprising I mean but I suppose you have to go at some point right? Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about growing up between 18 and 21, because I've always thought of the difference between my experience at Oxford and my experiences at Harvard as being a difference in the country and a difference in the institution. But it probably also was just being that bit older and having that bit more confidence. So tell me about your immediate family unit now. Who's in it? So there's my husband, Amory. Don't shame me by pronouncing it well in French because I know you can. 
we have a three-year-old little boy and we have a little boy who turned one in September. So he's toddling and, well, he's more than toddling. He's running around like a loon after his brother most of the time, which is very cute. I never, ever imagined that I would have two boys. Didn't even cross my mind that that would happen, which sounds ludicrous, but it's lovely. And has it been what you expected, having two boys? I mean, they are nuts. They have energy all day long, nonstop. They're running, they're jumping, they're shouting. And they're they're so lovable, both of them. But I sometimes see either just quieter boys or girls that are interested in sitting down and painting or, or whatever it might be and sort of occasionally feel a bit wistful looking at these children that can sit still for more than a couple of minutes at a time. But I love it. What I had never thought about was this really special bond, and maybe you can relate to this, but I think there really is a special bond between a mother and a son. And it's so wonderful. And I feel it so strongly with him that I was delighted when we had a second boy because I just thought this is great. But most of the time they are rampaging. So a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So that's intense. Yeah, there's 22 months between them and... It is intense. I think what's interesting is that the intensity is not linear. So there are moments where it's incredibly, incredibly hard. And then there's a period where it gets easier again. And I think that those moments where it's difficult, they tend to be around transitions. So when our youngest came home from hospital, it wasn't too difficult to have both of them because he was a bit nervous of the baby and a bit scared of hurting him and would be very sweet and come and give him kisses and toys and things, but he didn't really touch him. And then the moment that the baby went from being held all the time to being on the floor, we started to have a problem and (laughs) just really physical with him and always wanting to have kind of rough and tumble. But then he got used to it and it was fine again until the baby started walking. And then that was a whole other ball game. So I think these things come in waves and part of it is about learning how to handle the new context. And then it all changes again and you're in the next level and you don't even know the rules. So you start again. But I think that's just going to be the next 18 years. I'm sure that my mum would definitely say and beyond. So what did you do pre-babies? We talked a little bit about university and I know that you said that you started your career in politics. Was that always something that you knew that you wanted to do? No, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I'd say I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do until quite recently, which explains why if you saw my CV, I've jumped around quite a lot and I've done a little bit of private sector, public sector, social enterprise, just to find out what really works for me and where I think I can have the most impact. So I came back from America and did an internship in Parliament that led on within about a year to a role in Downing Street, which was a little bit of blind luck because someone that I had been working with was pulled into work for the coalition once the May 2010 election had happened. So I worked there for a couple of years before deciding to go off to New York to see if I liked the private sector better. It turned out that I didn't. It was fun, but I really missed that sense of having an impact on something other than a profit and loss statement. So I feel like I learned a lot at uh, the Boston Consulting Group over in New York, but it didn't feel like a long term home for me. So I came back to the UK and that's when I started working for NCS where we met. I remember you saying that the plus side of going over in New York was because you had a British accent. That wasn't the main reason why I went there. (laughs) It was true. And I think there's a word for it, actually. I've forgotten what it's called. Something like credibility bias, where there are certain things that make you more or less credible to others, which are completely unfounded. And one of them is being in America with a British accent. The reason I went there was having worked in Downing Street in what was quite an intense and addictive environment at the time with an amazing group of people. It felt really hard to leave. So I'd already had an offer before I started the role in Downing Street and I just deferred it and deferred it. And eventually they said, well, look, it's fine that you're deferring, but are you actually still coming? Why do you want to join? And 
the reason that I gave was because I wanted to travel and that I wanted a job that would take me outside of the UK and let me experience a little bit of the world. And the partner I was talking to just said, oh, well, if that's what you want, you could always start somewhere else like Boston or Chicago or New York. And it was like a sort of ding, ding, ding bell in my head as soon as he said New York. And I was on the phone to an immigration lawyer three days later. So it was entirely unplanned. And if I hadn't have had that conversation with the partner, my whole life would have taken a different course. For me, I really treated that job as a boot camp. I wanted to get in, learn as much as I could, meet amazing, talented people, including my husband, actually. And then I wanted to bring all of that and really build something that mattered. And that's what took me into social enterprise. Ah, so that's where you met your husband. I did. We were on a project together, a terrible project, a project that was so bad, in fact, that he got himself kicked off the case by complaining about it. And we were just friends initially. We we worked together closely and really enjoyed each other's company. And we didn't have any hints that it would become a romantic relationship at all. Anyway, we started going out. That was nearly nine years ago now. We've talked about you left Harvard and then were at BCG for a couple of years and then you came back. So what happened then? So that's when I joined NCS as Director of Strategy. So for those who don't know, which I assume is everyone, (laughs) NCS is a a programme that takes 16-year-olds and puts them on a course over the summer where they meet new people, experience new things and, and learn new skills. When I joined, it was very small, but with a big ambition to grow. And I think over the course of those four years, it went from about 8,000 teenagers a year to 90,000 teenagers a year. So the growth was pretty rapid and the job was quite intense as a result because there were lives at stake some of the time. At certain weeks of the summer, there would literally be tens of thousands of teenagers out doing you know, adventurous activities. And we needed to make sure that they were safe and happy. And there's a lot of stress that comes with that, actually, as you probably remember. And for me, it was one of my favourite jobs, partly because of that impact and that sense of fulfilment. But the other thing that made it fantastic was the team. And that is when we met. And that is one of my favourite teams I've ever worked with anywhere. It was just full of rock stars. And that made the job really wonderful. Then it was a really wonderful time. Yeah, it was. It really, really was. And 8,000 to 90,000 young people when you started as director of strategy, that is phenomenal growth, but with it must have come phenomenal stress. Yeah, there was a huge amount of pressure and I had a lot of responsibility for managing that. And certainly in the last six months or so of my time in post, it was quite a, a stressful job, I would say. For anybody else who's listening and doing the kind of maths in their heads, that's phenomenally young to have a director of strategy role under your belt. Yeah, it, it was. And it's really interesting because I, I started out my career and really thinking that age is just a number. And I, you, I probably said that to you a gazillion times outside <laughs> of this setting. But as I've grown older, just see a little bit more the value of experience and look back on some of the roles that I've had. And I think when I joined NCS, everyone in the team that I was running was older than me. And mostly they were older than me by about 20 years. So this was my first role where I was actually formally the head of a team and I was the youngest person. So that was a challenge. And in that role, I was learning on the job. You had a really, really challenging role and you were working some pretty nutty hours. But it sounds like you making a decision to do that, move on with your life and then have children whilst being in quite a stressful position. What was sort of going through your mind at that time? Well, you know, I think I'm the kind of person who up until that time, at least, I was really a mind over matter type person. And whether it was academically or professionally, I really believe that I could push through anything and that if I just set my mind to something I could make it work no matter how many hours or how much stress or whatever and that year that year that you joined the team I really hit a wall with that and I learned that actually there are some things you just cannot push through and that was trying to have a baby and for me for whatever reason I had three miscarriages in a row which is 
known as recurrent miscarriage and I'm not going to say that it was because of the stress because actually I think that's a really harmful argument to think that you can link stress and miscarriage but what is definitely true was that I wasn't able to process what had happened and I wasn't able to cope with it while also doing that very stressful job so I ended up taking a sabbatical which ended up being a, a sort of permanent exit from NCS. And three miscarriages, I mean, again, it's something that people are aware of and they talk about and people will say, oh, yeah, it's super common. And they almost say like, oh, it's super common as a way to kind of alleviate maybe your pain, but it doesn't make it any less painful at the time. And I can imagine that somebody like you and to all the listeners as well might think, wow, she's absolutely got it made. She went to Oxford and then she went to Harvard and then she went to New York and then she just, you know, waltzed into a director of strategy role. Obviously you did not waltz. It seems like everything is very perfect on paper. And then did it feel like you'd almost let let yourself down? Like how did that feel at the time? You know, I'm not really someone who chases perfection. Um, So I didn't feel that I'd had this sort of perfect trajectory and then now it wasn't happening. But what I did struggle with very strongly was that there wasn't anything that I could do. And I was really used to the idea that if I put the work in, did the things that I was supposed to do, that I could get the result that I was looking for. Um, And like I said, I just felt like I could push through anything if it was going to get me where I wanted to go. And actually, pregnancy is just not like that. You can't treat it that way. Of course, there are things that you can do to make it more likely that you'll have a healthy and successful pregnancy and you can make it easier on yourself. But you're not in control of it. And that was hard because I think I don't strive for perfection. But if I'm being honest with myself, I do strive for control. And this was so far out of my control that after the third one, which was by far the hardest to deal with for all sorts of reasons, I just had to sort of it felt a bit like admitting defeat and just saying, you know what, I need a few months. I need to sit back and um and heal. It's a strange cultural dynamic that we're in at the moment. This this idea that in the first trimester you just don't tell anybody and it's a sort of slightly crass thing to do and it's too early and you know what if what if but it it stigmatizes in my view baby loss in some ways because you're saying well you know you can only share good news with people you you can't share bad news and so were you sort of suffering in in silence a bit at that time I did the first couple of times. So the first time that it happened, there weren't very many people who knew. My parents knew because at that moment, I really thought that positive pregnancy test equals babies. So of course, within a few days, I had blurted all to my mum because I tell her everything. But not very many people knew outside of that, apart from my boss and even fewer the, the second time. But the third loss happened at about 11 weeks and by that time I had gone through nearly a full trimester of morning sickness and exhaustion and all of the fun things that come in the first few weeks of trying to um, harbour a little baby inside you and I, I couldn't keep quiet about it so I don't think I told the team as it was happening but I do remember sitting down with the female members of the team in particular and saying that I wanted you to know what had happened because I wanted you to know that this was something that senior women dealt with junior women dealt with that just happened in life and that actually health needed to come first and I became much more open about it then because part of the shock for me especially the first time was learning that this was it sounds silly because obviously miscarriage was a word that I knew and it was something that I knew in the abstract could happen but I didn't know that it happens as often as it does me being open about it has meant that anyone in my sort of immediate circle of friends they tend to tell me if it happens and it's it's common it really is three times isn't common that's less than one percent we were really really unlucky but it is a common thing and I think it's incredibly hard to talk about if you haven't gone through it so actually knowing who in your circle has gone through it is important. 
And it is an opener, you know, that you've had one. People that I didn't know had had one or whatever, as soon as I had said that I'd had one, suddenly lots of people were saying, oh yeah, me too, but they'd never brought it up independently. Yeah. And I really remember this. I remember it from the third time it happened to us because what I realized was that all of the older women in my life who I was speaking to, almost without exception, there were one or two exceptions, but most of them had had at least one. And most of them also had healthy pregnancies and gave birth to beautiful babies and everything was fine. But I felt really conflicted about this discovery that it was so commonplace because I don't think it's right that it is so secret because there's all sorts of reasons why partly because then it's a real shock if it happens to you the first time but also because there's nothing shameful in it or there shouldn't be it's something that has happened to you and it's a big thing and it's a big thing whether it happens at five weeks nine weeks 12 weeks it's a very big thing if it happens after that but this expectation to keep it private I think is it can be quite damaging. And did you feel that yourself in particular with the first and second or what is it that's made you feel particularly like that? No it was for me the the third was a much more profound event because I think for the first and the second I was still in that mentality of just keep moving ahead and just keep going and everything will be fine and then I think the first two were earlier as well and that made it a little bit easier to cope with whereas with the third loss we really had started to gain confidence with each passing week and it started to feel like maybe we were safe to start thinking about a baby um so it hit me very hard and made me think a bit more about what I needed to to be okay again and part of what I needed was to talk and it's interesting because for me and this goes back to the theme of control it was very important that I chose who to talk to about it and I was very sensitive to the idea that someone that I spoke to might talk to somebody else for example it was very I was quite guarded with the information which is ironic now we're talking about it on a podcast but that was what I needed at that moment in time and as we've moved on from that this was all in in 2016 and now I'm in the incredibly fortunate position of having two beautiful boys I feel like I can be more open again and that it's important to do that because this is a part of female experience it's also a part of family experience it's hard on the fathers too what's weird is that of course this is a podcast about back to work after after babies but back to work after miscarriage is quite a different thing altogether particularly if you haven't really told that many people and particularly the people who are working for you or the people you're working with and I always think about this particularly with people that are going through IVF etc or and perhaps not telling people going through fertility treatment it's a huge thing on the female body. Yeah, absolutely. And this happened to me in, it was late August, the third one. And I took a little bit of time off, not very much. Spoke to our chief executive about what to do next. And I, I had come to the realisation within a few weeks that I needed to step away for an extended period. So we decided that at the end of October, I would take a sabbatical. And what is so strange is that I have a really good memory. So I can remember entire conversations that I've had as a teenager or even younger. But I do not remember September to October of that year. It's a blur because I think I was just existing. It was one foot in front of the other doing what I needed to do to get to that finish line of being able to just stop and feel it. And those two months are just this gray blur in my memory that I can't I don't know if it's that my energy was focused on just carrying on so my memory didn't work in quite the same way or if it's that my brain won't let me remember because of how painful it was I think sometimes many of us kind of forget you know or or find it difficult to recall detailed events from something that's been very painful to experience so it's not that surprising Yeah, 
I took a few months to just put myself back together again, I guess, and do the things that I needed to do to feel happy and to feel like a person again. And that, for me, looked like spending a lot of time with my husband, with my family, travel. My sister and I did an amazing trip to Norway where we went husky sledding and dipped in the Arctic Ocean. And all of these things really, really helped. But I got to the end of the sabbatical and realised that I just needed a fresh start, that I needed to do something a little bit different. And that's when I was asked to come back to Downing Street to lead a couple of projects under this time Theresa May as Prime Minister and that felt to me like a really good way to move forward because it was working with someone that I had known for a long time and really respected who I had been open with about what I had been going through and who I knew would be supportive of whatever I needed to do to focus on having a family. I mean, three miscarriages, I know that generally GPs or the health system, whatever, won't even look at you until you've had two. So was there a point at which, was it after the third one where you thought, do I need to look into this or what what was going on? They generally won't look into it until you've had three, just because it is very common to have one or two. And we did, we had a barrage of tests and we had... NHS ones which took months we used up a chunk of savings to private tests as well and I'm reading a book at the moment about the gender data gap maybe you've read it invisible women and I think this is an area that is it's particularly true because there just aren't great explanations for why this happens and it's easy to say that a lot of the time it's an unexplained loss but as someone who's gone through it that's quite hard to swallow And in my case, we knew that the third loss was because of a chromosomal issue. So it was an extra copy of a chromosome that meant that the baby would never have got past the first trimester, sadly. But it did help to know that. But what we didn't know was what had happened the first couple of times. And eventually we found a really wonderful doctor who works at St. Mary's Hospital in London and who is just... It has such integrity, which you'd expect that of everybody. But I think this is a, a difficult space because women become desperate for answers and quite understandably so. But we found that we didn't feel that everyone we met in this space was necessarily acting with total integrity and that sometimes they might be saying things that we would want to hear. Whereas in this case, this brilliant, brilliant doctor just said, look, I can't explain what's happened. I think you've probably just been really, really unlucky. But what we're going to do is give you the best possible chance for your next pregnancy. And here's the plan and and gave us a plan of action. And then I started my secondment in March of 2017, found out very soon afterwards that I was pregnant. And that was a, a healthy pregnancy that went to term. And I can't say if it's because of the treatment plan or because of the massive lifestyle changes or because we were just lucky that time. I think the more time has gone by, the more comfortable I am with the idea of of luck. But I definitely wasn't willing to give it any credit at the time. Referring to that book that you're talking about, I think women are very routinely, very routinely given absolutely zero explanation. And I know someone who went through a a, a late first trimester miscarriage and she was provided zero explanation. It wasn't so much that there was zero explanation. It's just that there was no effort to come up with an explanation. It was just, oh, it's just one of those things. And it's like, hang on, if somebody was really seriously ill or died or something you wouldn't just say to people it's just one of those things you do research and you find out why so why is it that it's just kind of written off and I think that's where charities like Tommy's and the Miscarriage Association etc do really pioneering and amazing research but I found that in my own experience what had happened to me was that I'd taken the test that said pregnant and then a few days later I took a test because I just took another one because I thought well logically if the pregnancy is progressing well I'll have more pregnancy hormone or HCG so I'll take another test and it will just say that I'm still pregnant (laughs) so I just naively took another one and I took another test that said not pregnant and I was like I don't know what's happening this is really weird. And I called the hospital. I called everybody. I went to the early pregnancy unit. And this is 
by the way, very standard for super early miscarriages where you wouldn't necessarily even know that you were pregnant other than the fact that you have obviously an extremely long and painful quote unquote period. And it wasn't until I spoke to a friend of my mum's, she was a midwife for 30 years. And I said, can you explain this to me? Because I went to the hospital and I'm so confused. Why did I have a positive test? And now it's a negative. What does that mean? And she just straight up, she just said, yeah, that's, that's not great. It doesn't look great. So I would just prepare yourself and, you know, I think it's probably pretty likely that you'll have a miscarriage. And then two days later I did, but it was, I just thought that was really odd that even an early pregnancy unit, nobody on the phone could say that that was what was going to happen. I just didn't have any proper information. I had to find it all myself. And that is now I understand really, really common. Yeah, it is. That definitely resonates with me. I, I know that it's not their intention, but you end up with false hope because instead of saying, actually, the most likely thing is that this isn't going to be a healthy pregnancy, I'm, I'm really sorry, just sort of say they don't know yet or they can't say. And I'm not sure why there must be something to do with liability or I don't know, but I agree with you. It'd be a lot easier if you had just a more human conversation about what is most likely going on because otherwise, and I think this is biology and I don't know if it was true for you, but it was for me that in the absence of that clear, truthful message, you latch on to any hope that you can find and that makes it more painful if a loss then happens. For sure. And I ended up going to the GP and I said, I've had a positive test and now it's a negative test. I've had cramping and I've had this and that, whatever. And he just got out immediately some pinwheel, like a paper pinwheel in his desk that said, okay, so when was your last period? And I told him, he said, okay, congratulations. Your due date is this date. No. Yeah. And I remember thinking, hang on, you're, you're not listening. You're not listening to me. I just said, I'm concerned. And he just carried on the conversation as if I wasn't there and just said, okay, sweet. Well, we'll get you registered. And I had to say, no, please don't register me. Please don't because I don't know what's going on. And I, I don't know, it's just complete ignorance. You know, I don't think it was malice. I think he just didn't understand. Yeah, that's really shocking. And I think it goes back to that credibility gap thing again, because what I found was that my experience after the third time it happened to me was very different. And I was, so what happened there was I didn't have any symptoms. Everything was the same as it had been for the the rest of the first trimester up to that point but I had a really graphic vivid dream like well a nightmare I had a horrible nightmare about losing the baby and it terrified me it absolutely terrified me and it was on a Friday night I had something that I needed to attend on the Saturday so I couldn't go and get checked out and then the clinic was closed on the Sunday so between that Friday night and that Monday morning I was just existing in this state of dread and panic but there wasn't any physical reason really to feel that way but I went to the early pregnancy unit on the Monday morning and just told them what had happened and they they were really great with me it was the same hospital that I'd been to for the others and I think by that time they they just they listened they listened to what I was saying they were kind they were thoughtful and they did the scan and it had, it was a missed miscarriage and they they were really brilliant that time but it was a total contrast to how I had been spoken to when I had my first miscarriage and I found an analogy to be the same giving birth for the second time around I felt that it was a completely different kettle of fish because first time for some reason you're just not quite listened to in the way that you are the second time around I don't know if that's particular to women or if it's something that everybody experiences, but I've definitely found with the medical profession that when it's your first experience of a particular situation, you're not listened to in the same way as you are when you've been through it before. And I wonder if it's just a basic human interaction thing where if you're talking to somebody and they say, yeah, I've done this before, you know, and just asserts themselves in that way, whether it just changes the power dynamic. Yeah, that could be it. So I wonder, 
could be them, but I also wonder whether it was you. And whereas perhaps ordinarily you would have just said, oh, maybe it's a bit silly. Maybe I shouldn't tell them this. Like it's just a dream, you know, and you kind of logic yourself out of doing it. Maybe you're a bit like, well, actually sod it. You know, I'm just going to tell them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it also comes down to trusting yourself and trusting your body. And for me, I just knew in my gut that something was wrong that something was terribly wrong and I listened to it and probably I wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been for the experiences that I'd had. So as you talked about earlier with this kind of want for control and that always being something that was valuable and important to you having that plan from that doctor whether it was the plan or not that then made things work out that must have felt like a huge comfort. Yeah, it really did. And I think that a nurse put it in a way that I found very helpful at the time, which was that she said to get through your next pregnancy, you just need to put some scaffolding around yourself. You need some things to lean on to kind of hold you together as you go through it. And a key element of that scaffolding for me was having a treatment plan that would give me the best chance of a healthy pregnancy. You don't have to go into this, Emma, if you don't want to, but what was in that treatment plan? It wasn't very complex. St Mary's do a blood test that looks at the speed at which your body breaks down blood clots and their ability to make them, I think. And on one of those measures, my clotting was just not where it should be or was at a level that was associated with bad outcomes for pregnancies. So the treatment for that's quite simple. It's a blood thinning medication called heparin and you have a daily injection of it. And I had that for both of my healthy pregnancies from the moment that I had a positive test to about 20 weeks both times. So once they do the 20 week scan and can check that all of the blood flows are normal, that's when the doctor said that I could stop taking them. Oh my God. So you injected yourself every day. I have never injected myself because I can't. I actually can't. There's something Game of Thrones-esque about it that I've been terrified my whole life of injections. I hate them. I literally once fainted because I saw my cat have an injection and I woke up (laughs) in a white room with a man in a white coat leaning over me and I had no clue where I was. I'm literally the worst. And we went to the clinic for them to show me how to do it. And I would just count one, two, three and then freeze and not be able to do it and after about five goes at this my valiant husband said can I do them for her and so my husband gave me injections every day that's exactly what happened to me but with the injections that you have to take post c-section it's the same one it's the same medication yeah Uh, okay I couldn't do it and it was the fact that it's directly into your stomach and I was like I've just had a baby there do you know what's worse than doing it when you've just had a baby there is when you've got a baby in there that's been there for 20 weeks and your stomach is incredibly <laughs> tight. It's really hard. And the other thing is when you do it every day, you get a lot of bruising and you get more bruising because it's a blood thinner. So it's really unpleasant. But whether or not that made the difference, I will never know. But I was grateful to have a plan. And what I appreciated about this plan, and the doctor was very, very clear about this, was that heparin cannot cross the placenta. So there's absolutely no risk to the baby whatsoever, which isn't necessarily true of all of the potential treatments out there. You must be so grateful to that doctor for just listening. I really am. I just still remember the first time that I met him and he just said, look, I think that my job is to give you your confidence back. Mm. And, and he did. So, and he said, look, you've got time on your side. You're young. Your husband is young. You're getting pregnant. That's a good sign. And, you know, we're just going to give you the best shot at this that we can. But isn't that funny that him saying, you know, you're getting pregnant, that's a really good sign. But when people say, at least you can get pregnant, it has a totally different connotation. I think that's because anything that starts with at least somehow negates whatever it is they're responding to. So he was not saying it to in any way minimize the impact of the losses that we had. He was saying it purely 
with a forward look of what might happen in the future. And what he meant mm. was, we don't need to look at IVF because luckily you're not having problems in that space. So you were then undergoing your first pregnancy, but essentially your fourth pregnancy yeah. when you were pregnant with your eldest. And what was that like doing a new job and, you know, also having this additional kind of stress or did you by that stage feel quite confident? Well, my goal for that period was a healthy pregnancy. The job was absolutely secondary at that time. And I will always be grateful to my boss that I had then, who's one of the PM speechwriters. And we had been very clear from the outset that this was going to be structured in a way that worked for me and that the priority was my health. And that meant that what could have been a really awkward conversation only a month or two into the role where I had to say, actually, I'm pregnant. And he responded by saying, well, that's wonderful. That was the plan wasn't it instead of saying oh that's a bit sooner than we thought I'm someone who really struggles in the first trimester I'm um, at least and in that pregnancy in particular I was sick a lot and I was having to kind of excuse myself for meetings in number 10 and then dash off to the lose which was not very much fun and I was responsible for an exhibition that was roving around the country which meant a lot of travel on trains and cars and oh that was miserable I was really, really in, in a bad way when I was needing to do all of that. But I didn't have the same stress that I had felt in my previous role. I wasn't managing a big team. There weren't billions of pounds at stake or hundreds of thousands of lives. It was quite a defined task. It was managing two particular projects. And I felt that I could do that well, but that I was being actively encouraged to focus on my health and to do what I needed to do um, to feel comfortable and I just couldn't have asked for a more supportive manager at that time. That must have just made such a difference and also just really taken the stress out of the situation. It certainly helps just generally hormonally how you're feeling in pregnancy etc to not be stressed and not be in a stressful job. Yeah I think the way that I came to think of it is that I've only got a certain amount of energy and you need to decide where to focus that energy. And right up until leaving NCS, I probably put 90% of my energy into my work. And over time, that has shifted to putting much more emphasis on my life outside of work. And in a way, all of this was a great preparation for becoming. You need to go through that transition anyway. I think I just started it a little bit earlier and I put the building blocks in place to get my life into a a state where I could have a, a baby and also manage my work. So how did that affect your back to work journey with your eldest? It sounds like you just approached it in much more of a balanced way than maybe you would have had you been pregnant successfully at NCS and then walked straight back into your director role. Yeah, I think that would have been a challenge for sure. I decided to stay in government and after my first maternity leave, I took on a new role in the cabinet office, but number 10 and cabinet office are sort of one and the same, just physically different buildings. And I worked for someone again who I'd worked with before, who had three children herself and understood the pressures of those early years and worked with her to set up something called the National Leadership Centre, which exists to bring together CEO level leaders from right across the public sector, whether they're NHS trust chiefs or three-star generals, and did that and had been open with her from the beginning about wanting another baby, partly because we were aware that, you know, perhaps it might take a long time. We didn't know if we were going to have more trouble or whether we were would go straight into another healthy pregnancy which in the end is what happened luckily and quite soon into that role I was pregnant again but I was still in that mindset of my personal life being the priority for that period and being very open about that with my manager at the time and feeling very supported to make that choice and it meant that returning to work then I probably struggled with the same things that everyone does a little bit of a loss of confidence over that time away from the workplace and a sense of my identity shifting a little bit and becoming a new one but I didn't feel under pressure I didn't feel stress in the way that I had done up until leaving NCS yeah and that must have just made the biggest difference generally yeah 
It really did. And I, so I'm probably one of the broodiest people that you'll ever meet. So I've wanted a baby since I was about five when my brother was born. And I remember my husband saying to me not long after our eldest was born that he sort of looked at me one night and said, you've wanted this for a really long time, haven't you? Like, before you even met me a long, long time. And he was right, I have. And then suddenly after all of this pain and difficulty, we had exactly what we had wanted, which was a beautiful, healthy baby. And I was really clear from that moment on that I just wanted to make the most of the time that I had with him. And for me, my career is incredibly important. I'm driven and I'm ambitious and I want to do things that matter, but it's a marathon not a sprint and I just accepted that I might have a different pace for my career for this period and that I needed to find a way to hold the two in balance. We talked about earlier in the recording that you'd obviously got to a super senior position at a relatively young age and I think in some ways I'm sure that that helped because it didn't necessarily feel like you were still clamoring for that seniority because you'd sort of already you'd sort of achieved that one you ticked it off in a way I'd never really thought about it like that but I think that's probably true I definitely didn't feel like I had anything to prove I felt that I just needed to not lose sight of my own health and well-being and, and time at home and that I wanted to do work that mattered and that I would enjoy and where I could make a contribution but it couldn't be the be-all and end-all for this phase of my life. And what do you think the biggest difference is between pre-babies and post-babies Emma? You talked about not really sprinting anymore and doing the marathon, but are there other differences? I think I've learned how to have boundaries. And I think that's true at home and I think it's true at work. Pre-babies, sort of nothing was out of the question in terms of how hard I'd have to work or what I'd have to put myself through to get something done or achieve. And now that I have the babies, it's about channeling that energy in the right way but stopping before it takes too much from me and at work that means being much more directive about my diary and making sure that I'm happy with what I'm committing to in a given day and being quite firm about when I finish or when I'm online and when I'm not and at home as well it's just about really clearly communicating what each of us is going to do and be responsible for and making sure that that burden is shared equally where it is a burden by that I'm talking about you know all the boring chores that you have to do when you've got a house full of boys or children (laughs) of any gender in fact and just being a little bit more aware that my my energy and my tank is not infinite it can get depleted and that is it sounds basic but that's a realization that I just hadn't had before embarking on this journey to have children. I love that. The tank is not infinite. And it's just so true. I think if you're a high achiever type person, I think you can get lulled into the false sense of security that if you if you just keep working, it'll happen. And I think our body just has some amazing ways of just being like, no, actually, I think you reached your limit now. (laughs) And also making you realise that it's not a good thing to just run on empty. It's not a badge of honour. It's not something to aspire to. And I don't think I ever actively did aspire to those things. But I was probably a little bit too proud of what I would have described as resilience. Whereas now I think it's just better to not have to call on that level of resilience if you can possibly avoid it and I would structure my life and I'd encourage the people around me to make sure that they protect their time and their energy and they kind of are conscious about what they're focusing on. And resilience that is a really interesting word because I feel like there are always workplace fads aren't there whether it's hot topics that people are talking about culture or flexible working or mental health or whatever there are things that on LinkedIn or whatever you see people talking about and definitely a few years ago resilience was one of these essential interview questions that you had to ask people and I took real objection to that because I feel like it's a sort of veiled way of saying basically if you're willing to put up with anything then that's a good thing that was the sort of that was the tone 
Yeah, and that's not helpful, is it? I think it's a very different thing to say, you know, there might be moments or periods that are a bit more intense than normal where you need to kind of really throw yourself in to making it a default expectation that you operate at that level all the time or that somehow your personal characteristic of being able to cope with stuff is an excuse for not having a workplace that is sustainable. The other one that gets me is like you need to be able to hit the ground running, which I always feel like is code for we're not going to bring you up to speed at all. And we're going to expect you to do a perfect job from the beginning. Is that OK? <laughs> yeah, um, the answer to that is no, no, that is not OK. I would like some onboarding, please. Exactly, exactly. So we're running out of time, um, but I've just got a couple more questions before I go. So. You spent a long time in and out of the private and public sector, but specifically in government. Do you feel like there are things that we can do better as a society on providing for new mums or people that are going through recurrent miscarriage or fertility issues? Oh, yeah. I don't think we have enough time to talk about all the things that I think we could be doing better. I think that for me, the biggest one, just as women in particular, is shifting from thinking that we're all just individuals trying to do the best that we can to understanding that there's a community of people out there who've gone through similar things and who can help and support us and are probably ready and willing to do that if we just open up to them. And definitely if you're going through something very specific, like as I mentioned, recurrent miscarriage is actually thankfully quite rare. It's less than 1% of women who go through that. It's really worth finding the community of people that have a similar experience to talk to and lean on. And at that time, there was a sort of support thread on Baby Centre, I think it was, of women that were in exactly that situation. And I found that to be the most helpful resource just for feeling understood and for feeling like I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only person going through this and with the questions and feelings that I had. And I think that's also true for motherhood more broadly. I'm a big believer that everyone's experience is unique and you don't want to be lulled into a false sense that your journey will be like somebody else's. But there are certain things that will resonate across a lot of people. And once you tap into that, it can make you feel a bit more supported and and a bit less alone. Definitely. And it is all about taking what is useful to you and ignoring the rest which seems like a sort of perfect representation of motherhood so I think just to kind of close because again unfortunately I I want to just carry on this conversation forever but I sneak one final question in there because why not which is is there any particular piece of advice that you'd want to leave any women who are listening who are concerned about going back to work with I had a really good piece of advice from a previous boss which was around just tolerating chaos so I think my advice would be that it's okay for things to not be picture perfect it's okay for them to not be quite at the level that they might have been when it was just you and your partner and just do what you need to do to be happy and do more of the things that make you happy and less of the things that are boring even if that means your laundry pile starts to resemble Everest or you're kind of picking your way around a gazillion trainers as you step through the door that's okay it's not going to be like that forever I think the lack of eternity is good to remember because it can feel very eternal each like level that we were talking about earlier can't it I think this is especially the case with your first baby but you start to become afraid of being stuck in a particular level or what if this never ends what if this stage where I don't sleep just carries on and they all do eventually sleep right you're not going to be having broken nights when they're let's say 10 i please God, let's say by 10. <laughs> I think it's just, for me, certainly the second time around, I've just had much more confidence that the difficult things are transient and they come and they go and you just need to do what you have to to get through them um, in whatever way works for you as a family, but to not lose sight of the things that are really magical that are also fleeting and transient. I think it's easy to get focused on the future and just wishing a stage away when actually there are so many magical things about that stage. Yeah, and I think it's about understanding what you need as a person to be happy because, as I said, I'm mega broody. There's nothing I love more than cuddling a baby. So for me, I'm just going to fit in as much of that as I possibly can while they're still small enough to be cuddled. But actually, maybe babies don't have to be your thing. 
it can be really amazing mums who are not very interested in the newborn phase and who just really love when their children are able to talk or, or read or whatever it is and everyone will enjoy something different and it's just finding what that thing is and then doing as much of it as possible. I think that's such a good point that you can be a good mum and really not enjoy a particular stage (laughs) and I remember really dreading the toddler phase because you know you see other people's toddlers you don't really have any life experience of other one-year-olds or two-year-olds or whatever and you think oh my god you know I remember we went to some like music class like me and my NCT friends and there were toddlers running absolutely rampant just you know around this room it's this music class and you know our babies were just peacefully diddling about on the floor And I remember thinking, oh my God, like I do not want that stage. I'm dreading it. I'm dreading it. And I love the toddler phase. I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, you don't know until you get there, right? And that's the thing. It's surprising. It's hard to predict what's going to be fun and what's going to be difficult. And it will be different for each child as well. That's one thing that we've learned that even your own children are not going to be that similar necessarily. So Mm. I had planned out my whole return to work the second time around based on how my first had been. And actually, they're like fundamentally different in terms of things like how much they want milk, how much they like to sleep or not in the case of my eldest. And you've just you've just got to kind of roll with it I guess yeah roll with it I think a a really good piece of advice to end it on and especially not losing sight of the magical bits amongst the kind of not so magical bits and general sleep deprivation well Emma I hope that went by quickly for you I've like enjoyed it so much it's just a pleasure to catch up yeah, I can't believe that we've been talking for so long, actually. It feels like we just got started. I know, right? This is the problem with these. But thank you so, so much for your time. And is there anything before we leave that you want to shout about or promote or put out there as a resource? You know, there is this one thing that I've really enjoyed since I discovered it that I might just share because I think the artist is fantastic. There's an Australian illustrator who's on Instagram as Common Wild and her name's Paula Kuka and she's also just released a book called Mum Life and she does these sketches of everyday moments of being a mother and I just find them, I find them hilarious but also they massively resonate with me and I think it's it's just really worth a look if you have a child or two at some of her drawings because they just perfectly capture what this phase is like and I've already decided that I want to print off some of her pictures to remind me in 20 years what this phase felt like so I want to give her a plug because I just think she's amazing okay brilliant so that's at common wild yes exactly fabulous okay well thank you very much Emma no thank you I I love this podcast it's been my go-to on the rare mornings where I get to commute and it's just that little bit of me time and I love what you're doing I think it's fantastic well I love that you love it because I love it so (laughs) it's just a big circle of love um anyway (laughs) thanks Emma enjoy the rest of your day and see you soon I hope you too take care Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at at newleafpodcast if you like and on at loopergrowth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day. And if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.